Do you own or rent your home? Of course you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy, though? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your house. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you can save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Develop some pretty significant dopamine and neurotransmitter responses that essentially desensitize you to pleasure and make you need, uh, you know, stranger and stranger things in order to get the same pleasurable response. Hey, Ben, I'm not being at all flip when I ask you this, but did you, in fact, really, like, hit your junk with stem cell injections. Hey, you go from porn to penis is pretty quick. Yeah, right. Um. Hey, now what's cracking? Welcome to episode 154 of the Jim Rohn podcast. And let me just say this right off the very top. I've had some amazing conversations in the last three plus years of running this side hustle, and I'm not looking to take anything away from any of my first 150 plus guests. All that said, this might be the single most fascinating conversation that I've had to date. Hell, I'd say this might be one of the more fascinating conversations I've had in the last three decades with anybody, either on or off the air. That's how strongly I feel about this one, and you will too, because Ben Greenfield is here. Ben Greenfield is unlike any that you have heard from on this podcast. He's an Ironman, an endurance athlete, a biohacker, an author, a public speaker, a fitness guru, a microdoser, a new age father, an experimenter, and a grizzly bear hunter, and that's only half of it. There is no way to properly set up what you're about to hear, so all I can say is lock in, get ready. Get ready, keep an open mind, and listen closely. You are 100% guaranteed to learn at least a dozen new things. Nothing to it, but to do it. So let's do this thing. Episode 154 with Ben Greenfield starts right now. Ben, listen, I've been looking forward to having this conversation for quite some time. I am pumped to have the opportunity. Thanks for making time for it, Ben. First of all, how are you doing during this most unusual time? Oh, man, I couldn't be better. I'm out on a a walk right now. I am uh, strolling down a farm road through the snow up here in Washington State, getting a little bit of vitamin D on a beautiful day. And, uh, man, being being holed away out in the forest uh, has been – Pretty, pretty amazing, actually, compared to being on an airplane every few days and wandering through airports. So I, I can't complain, man. It's, it's, it's kind of nice, but I'm also one of those introverted loner guys you can leave by myself for a pretty long time, and I'm still happy as a clam. So I see you working. Hey, Ben, I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised at all that if you were going to take this on and do a podcast and have a conversation with somebody like me, you were going to do so while walking and having some movement and getting some vitamin D, right? That's a no-brainer. <laughs> That's right, baby. Although it's weird. I, I, and I didn't really realize this until a couple of years ago. I, I fall into the uh, small subset of the population who actually can't uh, harness, based on genetic reasons, an appreciable amount of vitamin D from sunlight. Because I, you know, I used to race Ironman and I'd be out all summer, you know, on the bike and running and swimming. And my vitamin D levels were always, you know, kind of low, like below 30. And you want to have them, you know, ideally between about 40 and 80. And it was always a head scratcher for me. Then I got my genes test and it turns out i uh i don't get a lot of vitamin d from sunlight but there's a ton of other benefits as well so 
Uh, so I, I've, I'm, I'm still happy being out here. Good. I'm going to try and circle back and ask you about vitamin D, but I do want to ask you this. Like your background, for those who do not know who are listening, you're an author, you're a physiologist, you're an Ironman triathlete, you're a renowned biohacker, a body and brain performance coach, plenty of things that I would really like to talk to you about. But if you can go back to the very beginning, like what I'm curious is, I mean, you've accomplished so much in such a short period of time. What was your childhood like? Where and how did you grow up? I grew up in North Idaho, up up in what's called the Panhandle. For those of you familiar with the shape of Idaho, it's that skinny part up near, kind of in between Washington State and Montana. Like you mentioned, I was uh, I was homeschooled K through 12, and um, you know grew up uh, really really kind of um, you know spending a lot of time outdoors, doing a lot of hiking, and enjoying a lot of the the nature that Idaho has to offer, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I was kind of always a, a very curious, independent learner. My parents would give me books. I'd read them. I'd typically finish up all my schoolwork by around 11 a.m. and be out hiking the hills and p- playing outside afterwards. And, uh, you know, I'd, I've, I've always been kind of a, a real curious, um, almost like an autodidactic guy. I, just, I love, love to learn, you know, and in the past couple of decades, even since graduating university, you know, I've always got my nose in a book or I'm listen to some audio book or, you know, reading a research journal. And, and that's kind of how I've been since I was a kid. I've always been kind of a bookworm, but I've also always loved physical culture, you know, the outdoors, uh, you know, all things fitness and, and diet and nutrition based. And, uh, you know, wound up uh, playing a lot of tennis in high school and then played tennis in college. And uh, after tennis, I, I played for the water polo team. Uh, played whole step for the water polo team, played middle for the men's volleyball team. And then eventually I got into some of the more fringe sports like bodybuilding for a couple of years and uh, put on about 40 pounds of muscle for that and had to had to study up on a lot of nutrition and supplementation to do that. And then I I stripped all that weight off and got to Ironman triathlon for about a decade, raced all over the globe and then uh, raced for Reebok for uh, for obstacle course racing for Spartan for about four years. And then Last year, kind of hung up the competition hat, and uh, and now I just swing kettlebells in my garage. God, this shit is so good. So, Ben, like, for instance, you do all this work, and athletically, and you're active, and you're putting in this time, but you discover, Ben, at age 35, that you were biologically actually much older than you were chronologically, that despite all the conditioning and all the unbelievable work and time that you would put into it, your body was actually eroding faster than you expected. What did you think when you first realized that, and then what did you do about it? Well, it's kind of shocking at first, right? Because, you know, and this is a common phenomenon, especially amongst athletes and exercise enthusiasts is you can look pretty healthy on the outside and uh, you could be pretty unhealthy or even slowly, you know, dying on the inside. So, so when I began to, to delve into things like blood and biomarker testing, which nowadays is of course, super easy to do, even from your own home, you know, the stuff that, that, uh, you know, executives would have paid $10,000 for, you know, a decade ago at place like the Princeton Longevity Institute or, or Duke or the Mayo Clinic, you can now do for like, you know, a few hundred bucks from your own home. And, and I started to do a lot of blood and biomarker testing. And, you know, despite being very fit, you know, I looked good in spandex and could ride a bike pretty fast down the highway. I, I had rampant cortisol levels and, you know, hormone dysregulation. My testosterone was, you know, pretty much the equivalent of a, of a nine-year-old girl. I, I uh, had pre-type 2 diabetes based on my blood sugar levels, rampant levels of inflammation. 
um you know even like you know skin hair and nail issues shouldn't shouldn't have been setting in at that time you know it's kind of like that that phenomenon of when you go to you know I, I used to like I mentioned do bodybuilding and you know folks who look like Adonis from a distance and you get up close and you know you see all the all the wrinkles and the, and the inflammation and the oxidation settling in on on the outside in the skin and you know that's the same type of collagen elastin degradation that's happening you know internally as well and you know, I began to realize there's a lot, a lot more to health than just being fit or having a big aerobic engine or, you know, possessing a certain amount of muscle. And that's when I really started to take a deep dive into everything from, you know, the immune system to endocrine regulation and hormones to, you know, to a lot of the things that impact anti-aging and, and longevity and, and began to think about things, you know, from an athletic standpoint for more of, of, not just not not just a, a career standpoint, like how long can I keep my body put together at this pace, but also you know how I wanted to feel when I was done competing. You know, I I just didn't want hip replacements and joint replacements and to be on medications for diabetes and have to get on testosterone and you know all, all the issues that a lot of you know even fit people face. So there's just kind of this light bulb moment that being being fit and healthy on the outside is not the equivalent of being fit and healthy on the inside. Wow. So, I mean, I'm not looking to generalize, but then taking all that together, Ben, like is weightlifting and cardio then, is that a waste of time? No, I, I don't think weightlifting and cardio is, is a waste of time per se. I mean, look, you know, a hundred years ago or, or more, you know, gyms would have been relegated to to the warrior, to the gladiator, to the soldier, to perhaps the very competitive athlete or the Olympian who competed for a living, right, and, and relied upon uh, uh, exercise to get their, their paycheck. And, you know, now, um, you know, we, we, we tend to view the gym or weightlifting or cardio as the way to actually maintain health or longevity. When in fact, it, it's really not. And they've, they've done studies that have shown that, you know, if you, you know, go into a hard CrossFit workout or, or weight training session, or like a lunchtime, you know, run on the treadmill, uh, it's, it's, really not going to significantly impact, for example, your longevity or your cardiovascular mortality compared to the way that our ancestors would have lived, which would have been like, you know, low level physical activity all day long, occasionally sprinting or lifting something heavy, but not doing it, you know, over and over and over again, tearing down the muscles for an hour, an hour and a half in the gym. And the problem is, you know, in, in a post-industrialized era, you know, our, our, our jobs are largely sedentary, right? Unless we're a construction worker or a farmer or, you know, perhaps an athlete or someone who actually moves for a living. And because of that, we've had to kind of fabricate activity into our lives, such as that, that gym session at the beginning or the end of the day or, or the lunchtime run. And, you know, the problem with that is that most people do that and then sit on their ass for the next eight hours during the day. When, when in my opinion, the very best thing you can do is weave low-level physical activity into your day all day long, you know, like I'm doing right now. I'm talking to you, but I'm walking. If it, if it were storming outside or super windy or something like that, you know, and you wouldn't be able to hear me on the phone, I'd be, you know, on the walking treadmill inside my office. I, you know, I got a kettlebell on the floor of my office. I stopped during the day to do some swings. I got a, you know, a heavy deadlift bar loaded up in the garage where I can go out and lift heavy things, you know, a few times a day. And I, I try and 
try and almost like simulate what a hunter gatherer, you know, ancestral lifestyle would have been by keeping the entire day physically active. And I, I think it's, that's far healthier than just like destroying yourself in the gym or on the treadmill or by the side of the road, you know, for, for one single shot at some point during the day and then staying largely sedentary the rest of the day. So it's not that it's not that weightlifting or cardio is a waste of time. It's that the way we view exercise you know, it's like this single dose that we do during the day versus just weaving physical activity into our days all day long. Um, that that's, that's kind of the issue. I get that. That makes sense. Now, Ben, you're also a big proponent of microdosing psilocybin or psychedelic magic mushrooms. Now, it seems to me to the uninitiated, it sounds pretty hardcore, if not reckless. Is it like how and why do you do that? Take us in. Well, you know, the, the, this concept of microdosing, not just microdosing, you know, plant compounds like, say, uh, psilocybin or, you know, another common one that people will microdose with would be like uh, uh, San Pedro cactus extract. Some people will microdose with, with the ayahuasca vine, you know, and, and there's certainly a, a great deal of research now showing, you know, improvements in mood, uh, increases in neuroplasticity or the ability to learn, to build new brain neurons, to stay focused. Uh, there are, there are certain compounds that can increase, you know, social ability for, for, you know, an, an evening social function or certain compounds that, that can increase, uh, focus, even, even microdosing with so-called lysergamides, right? Like, like LSD, for example, in very small amounts, we're talking like one tenth to one twentieth of what one would use for a, for a so-called trip dose or, or heroic dose of said compound, you know, what, what happens when you, when you take very, very small amounts of these, you know, although, you know, most of them are, are still, you know, not, not legal to, to, uh, to sell or, or to use in the, in the U.S., um, you actually can get cognitive benefits that go way beyond what you might get from, say, like, you know, other common smart drugs or nootropics, like, say, caffeine or nicotine or something like that. And they're, they can be extremely safe, extremely effective. Um, and, you know, they, they can really make one's life better when, when used properly from a microdosing standpoint. Now, you know, as, as far as, you know, a lot of this research that, that folks like the, uh, you know, the MAPS Foundation or the folks at Johns Hopkins are doing on these larger, you know, so-called trip doses of the same compounds, um, you know, that, that, there's a time and a place for that type of thing too. Like they're, they've, they're coming out with some really good research on, um, on treating depression, on treating post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, or other forms of trauma with these larger doses of psychedelics. But I think that, uh, that the microdosing of them, you know, it's something that can, that can pro- produce, um, without a hallucinogenic or without a psychedelic effect, some pretty remarkable improvements in the ability to learn, the ability to focus, uh, the ability to be creative, and uh, when done properly, they, they, they really can make your life a little better. Hmm. So, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you kind of concerned about this notion, for instance, and I'm just jumping around, but this notion that American culture, for instance, is devoid of rites of passage, that maybe we lack rituals or traditions that can signify the changing of chapters in our lives or memorialize that type of thing? For instance, like, it, at least as it relates to your twin boys, are you not addressing that directly? Like, how old are they and what's your plan for them? Oh, geez, that's a, that's a big question. My, my boys are 12 years old. And, you know, again, if you look at a lot of these, you know, indigenous tribes, hunter-gatherer tribes, 
the way that our ancestors would have approached, say, the passage from, you know, let's focus on boys in this example, from boyhood to manhood. Typically, there was some type of rite of passage. Perhaps it was going out on your first hunt and harvesting your first animal for the village. Perhaps it was a week solo out in the wilderness where, you know, just you and your, your knife and maybe a blanket and you were left to fend for yourself and prove to the world that you were a man. And, you know, and, and then typically some type of crucible like that, you know, the, the Spartans called it the agogi, you know, where, where the young men would go through some type of brutal training session or at least something that was extremely character building and kind of hard, you know, somewhere around the age of, 11 to 15 years old, after that happened, there was typically some kind of ceremony that recognized that boy's passage into manhood, that recognized that boy's uh, sudden responsibility to need to provide food for the village or to need to provide income for the household, et cetera. You know, that, that's largely absent, especially in westernized culture. And what we wind up producing are, are, are you know, men from an anatomical and physical standpoint who are still boys mentally because because they never had that recognition that yo you you've become a man you know th this is your passage into manhood you've, you've successfully accomplished your first hunt or you spent several days in the wilderness on your own and shown that you're able to survive and take care of yourself and you know granted some rites of passage if you look into like let's say you know native american history they're pretty brutal you know they'd like you know hang hang you know, young men, you know, from, from their skin by hooks from the ceiling of, of some hut and then, you know, twirl them around and attach buffalo skulls to weigh them down and have them, you know, let down and, and run through the village till their skin was tearing off. Like, I, I'm not about torture, but I do think that, you know, we've, there, there's something very character building and something very special about recognizing when a boy has actually become a man. So, so for example, my kids, um, you know, like I mentioned, they're 12 now, they'll turn 13 in March. Um, when they turn 13, they'll have a four day solo out in the wilderness, just themselves, their backpack, a wool blanket and a knife. And they'll be out there left to fend for themselves, not completely alone, meaning I have a you know, facilitator who they worked with uh, for wilderness survival for the past six years. And he'll check in on them, you know, without them knowing, but he'll make sure they're they're still alive and then they'll, they'll finish that. They'll come out. They'll go through a ceremony, right? That recognizes their passage into manhood. They'll be expected to begin to provide and, and, and kick in income for the household, you know, for, you know, for heating, for food, for shelter, et cetera. And that'll be the recognition that they've become a man. You know, for me, personally, I never had a rite of passage like that. I, I spent years, you know, racing around the world and doing all these masochistic events like the Ironman and all these Spartan races and everything. And granted, part of that was just the thrill of adventure. But part of it really was to, you know, to, to be brutally honest with you, Jim, it was, it was me kind of trying to prove to the world that I was a man because I'd never really had that distinct rite of passage and ceremonial recognition that I'd passed through that, through that threshold of boyhood into manhood. And I think that, that we would have stronger men, stronger fathers, stronger husbands, and more responsible men in our culture if we did have some kind of built-in rite of passage just as, as something that was an understanding in, in our, our current Western scenario. We, ju we just don't. And I think it'd be better for society if we did. Wow. So, Ben, you mentioned the ceremony. So in the event or when they complete this ritual, you mentioned a ceremony. What would the ceremony include? What do they get aside from passage into manhood? Sometimes the ceremony can be very simple. You know, for example, you'll, you'll gather around a campfire at the very, very end 
and you'll present them with a special gift. Like maybe it'd be, you know, their, their first firearm for hunting or, you know, some type of special, you know, engraved knife or, or something that, that recognizes what they've gone through. And then, you know, mom and dad cut the cord, so to speak, and tell them, okay, you're free to go out into the world. You know, for, for my kids, you know, they've expressed a desire when they're 14 or 15 to go off and hike the Pacific Crest Trail. They're also touring around with the idea of, you know, going and, and touring around Europe. And you know, that's the type of scenario where you say, okay, you're ready. You're, you're on your own. If this is the time you want to leave the house and, and go explore, then you've proven to the world that you have what it takes. Off you go. And um, sometimes it can include even things like plant net medicine like what you alluded to earlier that you know a lot of these psychedelics for example they allow for uh dissolving of the ego right and that loss of ego is often accompanied by a real real deep sense of self and awakening of, of what one's purpose in life is and uh, and almost like a a breaking of the ego to the extent and, and i've gone through some some pretty hefty so-called ego death experiences uh, using those type of plant medicines that allow you to kind of progress in character and as an individual towards kind of a, a greater threshold of enlightenment and a manhood. And, you know, that, that certainly can also be an aspect of, a, of an adolescent rite of passage when used responsibly. But it, it can be something very simple, just disappear, head nod, recognition, cutting of the cord, all the way down to like a, you know, plant medicine ceremony. So it really depends. Hey, clones, I got a question. What do we do when we're craving protein or we need some more energy? I can answer that question by saying what we don't need. We don't need bars. We don't need sugary snacks. We don't need energy drinks. No, what we need and what we really want is beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. It's not shriveled or dry or tasteless. Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and tasty. It's not tough. And why is it so good? It says here it's so good because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. And Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go. So look for Old Trapper. It's in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're purchasing. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, clones, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? You know, Ben, I'm curious, plenty of parents, myself included, have college-age kids that are not of drinking age, for instance, but it's pretty naive to think that they will not drink when they leave home. You let your kids try wine and even scotch at a very young age. What was the thinking behind that, and how did you approach it? Uh, you, you the social worker showing up at my door, Jim. Yeah, right. Um, Sorry so, about that. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, so, anyways, it, the idea is that we we don't tell our kids no you know, for, for just about anything. I mean, you're granted, you know, if you got a toddler and they're going towards a hot stove and, you know, you know they're going to get a third degree burn, you know, you want to pull their hand away and say, say, no, you know, there are, there are certain circumstances where you do want to protect your child in a situation where they just don't know any better and, and don't have the mental faculties yet to make an educated decision. But in most cases, what we do is we use a parenting approach in which we educate our boys about the consequences of any decision that they might make then we let them make the decision and deal with the consequences. So what I mean by that is there's, there's no screen time rules in our house, right? Like you can be on a screen for as much or as long as you want, but both of my boys 
have, you know, by sitting down with me and, and hearing me out, been educated about the effects of, you know, blue light at night, TV at night, screen time at night, and the effect that that has on deep sleep levels and on sleep quality, and then on performance the next day, how good you feel the next day, how well you perform physically, how well you perform mentally. And then I educate them about that and then let them decide how long they're going to spend on their iTouch or on their MacBook or watching TV at night. Now, an important part of that is that if you're going to use that type of parenting approach, you also have to set an example, right? Like I can't educate them about all that and then be whipping out my phone at the dinner table and then pushing my chair away and watching Netflix at night, right? So, so for me, for example, you know, I'll put on some of those blue light blocking glasses and, you know, I'm usually reading a book or playing a guitar in the evening, you know, I'm not, I'm not on, on screen. So it's about educating them and then also setting an example. You know, we could also say the same for something like, you know, gluten. I don't, I don't tell my kids, you know, I'm not one of those health freaks that says, Oh, you can't, can't touch gluten. Don't eat that. That's off limits. Cause then, you know, what they're going to do at their next birthday party is, you know, that's the forbidden fruit. They'll go shove as many cupcakes in their face as they can. Cause dad's not around. Instead, they know what gluten does from a, from a neuroinflammatory and a gut standpoint. They understand, you know, how much the body can take and how much is too much. They understand the difference between like, you know, GMO commercial wheat and wonder bread versus say like a nice, you know, slow fermented sourdough bread that mom makes from a local wheat. And then we let them make the decision. If you want to take that one step further, it's what you alluded to, you know, it comes to alcohol, right? Like when a new bottle of wine arrives at our house and we're and 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 we look up that wine and we go visit the website for the farm where it's produced and then we pour a little bit into a shot glass and we get the tasting notes and the aroma and then sip a little bit and let it aerate in the mouth and observe and pay attention to the wonderful flavors and complexities of that wine and then have little sips you know from that same shot glass you know even even you know as a young person you know in, in between bites of steak or chicken for example to see how it changes and evolves as you eat a meal you know that that develops this amazing appreciation for something that's entirely natural versus you know what i grew up with in my house was i grew up in a very strict house you know where you know you, you didn't speak of or, or touch alcohol so my first experience with alcohol was stealing a bottle of scotch from my dad's office and getting drunk in my bedroom when i was 14. Hmm. i guarantee my kids are never gonna you know quote sneak unquote into the pantry and steal a bottle of wine and go up to the bedroom to get drunk because they've grown up with a very very healthy appreciation of and understanding for alcohol and they also have been educated by me about the consequences of drinking too much alcohol on their liver, on their, on their other organs. And furthermore, like I mentioned earlier, I set an example, you know, I don't overconsume alcohol. So they don't, they don't have an example in the house of someone abusing alcohol. So it's never going to be like a forbidden fruit for them. And, you know, I, I use the same approach with, with, like I mentioned, screen time, gluten, alcohol, you know, porn, you name it. And, and I think that educating a child about the consequences of their decision, then letting them make the decision creates a free thinking, resilient, independent person who's able to operate on their own two feet versus somebody who's just following rules and then as soon as nobody's watching trying that forbidden fruit that they've been banned from so what's the approach with porn the same as scotch the, exactly the same if they so i've sat down with them we've we've gone through all the effects that pornography would have on things like uh your your dopamine levels and the need for more extreme forms of porn uh, to get the same type of pleasurable response with repeated exposure. We've talked about objectification of women. We've talked about, you know, how would you feel if that was your sister or your mom or, you know, or your grandma or your daughter or, or anybody else put into that scenario. Um, 
and uh, there, you know, there's no, uh, there's no porn blocking software on, on anybody's computer. They, they know that if they wanted to go to a porn website and just see what it is, they're welcome to. But they understand the consequences of that decision from a neural standpoint and from a social standpoint in terms of the way that it, that it slowly degrades culture when women are objectified, the way that it affects the brain when your, your brain is suddenly put into an entirely non-ancestral scenario in which it's surrounded by, you know, essentially mates or mating activity, which is something that human beings wouldn't have experienced at all until the advent of, you know, well, magazines to a certain extent, but, but nowadays, you know, just reams and reams of pornography being available 24-7 from a computer. That's, that's not something the male brain has evolved to adapt with, and it develops some, some pretty significant dopamine and neurotransmitter responses that essentially desensitize you to pleasure and make you need, uh, you know, stranger and stranger things in order to get the same pleasurable response while not being able to be satisfied with, say, you know, uh, your, your girlfriend or, or your wife or, you know, or there's just a real, you know, human woman who you're with. Right. Hey, Ben, I'm not being at all flip when I ask you this, but did you, did you in fact really like hit your junk with stem cell injections? If so, what was the result? Hey, you go from porn to penises pretty quick. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, uh, when I was doing a lot of research on, on anti-aging and longevity, which I, I became very interested in a few years ago, you know, stem cells was certainly something that, that came up again and again, this idea that, you know, you can take these young cells that can do things like help turn new joints or fight inflammation or, or build new cells. And by keeping your levels of them topped off, you can, in a way, fight aging or say, you know, get something injected into a degrading joint and allow that joint to report repair more readily. And, you know, when I was looking at some of the research, it turns out that stem cells for things like erectile dysfunction or what's called Peyronie's disease in men can have some pretty remarkable sexual enhancement effects. And this was during a time when I was working on a, on about a six month article for men's health magazine in which they wanted me to kind of go out and try all the different things that, that a man could do to enhance his sexual health his bedroom performance, or even something like his penis size. And so, you know, I, for, for that article, you know, cause, cause a lot of the stuff I do is just basically pure immersive journalism. I, uh, you know, I, I did like, uh, what's called shockwave therapy, where they use something like an ultrasound machine on your junk to increase the formation of, of new blood vessels and kind of get rid of old blood vessels to improve erectile quality. I used, you know, a, a digital penis pump. I did the, you know, the, the no ejaculation for a month. I tried all the different gas station dick pills and, you know, and then we analyzed those in a lab to see what was actually in them. You know, it was a pretty, pretty hefty six month protocol. But as part of that, you know, one of the things that we did was we had, a bunch of stem cells harvested from the fat tissue in my back, grown in a lab to concentrate the availability of the stem cells, then re-injected into my dick to actually see what the effect of something like that would be on sexual enhancement. And it actually, I mean, the, the results actually were pretty impressive in terms of erectile quality and, and size and, and hardness and length of orgasm, et cetera. Obviously, you know, it's not, a, you know, if you, I think that procedure, if you're going to pay a doctor to do it, would be like over $8,000. So I don't, I, I don't know if it, if it wasn't for a, for a magazine article, et cetera. I, I don't know if I'd actually recommend that as the first thing to do if you're having bedroom problems, but, you know, certainly, certainly seemed to work. And the fact that it had been used for some time in research for things like erectile dysfunction and been proven to be, you know, safe in human males gave me the peace of mind that I'd, I'd be okay 
okay doing it. But, uh, you know, my, my dick did look like it had been run over by a semi-truck for a few days. You know, it turns all black and blue from all the needle injections. And my wife was a little concerned at first, but it, uh, it all turned out okay in the end. The fuck was I thinking asking you that question, Ben? And now I've crossed the <laughs> threshold, man. My man, I've done this a long, long time. We have never ventured into dick talk, and now we have. I love this podcast. This is fun. Ben, this this is really amazing. Like I honestly, all kidding aside, I've done this a long, long time. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had with anybody, either on or off the air on any platform. I want to ask you this. You're one of the top biohackers in the world, and I really am fascinated by literally everything you're saying. I want to ask you this. Help me reconcile how this i'm one of some of the people i admire most though are the kind of guys you know like the type of navy seals that would say to you there is no hack there is no shortcut there is just work there is just that grind there's getting up early there's staying up late there's grinding out every single hour in between there is no such thing as a hack so where do we come out on this is it something in between like i know you're putting in time i know you're working but what how do you respond to there is no such thing as a hack they should come join me in the garage for my kettlebell workouts if they think that uh, that I'm not into hard work. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, in the bitter cold bow hunting and sweating my ass off in a sauna and lifting heavy weights and and doing all manner of things that you know most people would not even go near. You know, aside from the the Navy SEAL, you know, slash CrossFitter slash you know masochistic type who believe in the blood, sweat, and tears. Because I actually do agree that the body does need you know, break through certain plateaus to be able to build mental resilience, to be able to build confidence, to be able to build perseverance, to be able to build character. Definitely, you need to do some hard things. But at the same time, there are shortcuts. There are hacks. You know, for example, if I, um, you know, in, in, in my office, I've got two giant red light panels and I'll go in there and strip off all my clothes in the morning and flip those red light panels on. And it's like I'm bathing in sunlight for 20 minutes every morning. And a lot of times I'll, I'll go in and flip those on in the evening when I'm working because they simulate sunset and sunrise and they allow my body to get exposed to all these healing infrared rays that I'd normally get from sunlight. But guess what? I live out in the middle of the forest, surrounded by tamarack trees on a north facing slope where I might get sunlight between about 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And so I'm shortcutting, right? I'm using a hack to simulate sunlight in my office. You know, similarly, you know, I, I could, I could try to try to hike or, or drive or, or bike four miles down to the Spokane River to do like a an icy cold soak in the river uh, which has a lot of benefits you know for for the joint for the brain for cellular resilience etc but I instead have this you know this this biohack right outside my office it's a 32 degree cold tub that that's a uh, um, treated with ozone and UV to keep it clean instead of chlorine and just me yeah I gotta break through the ice to get in every morning but I'll go jump in that thing. And, you know, that's also, it's a hack. It's a shortcut, saves time. I spent three minutes in that and I've got, you know, 30 extra minutes during the day that I didn't spend time going down to the river or the lake. And so, so yeah, I mean, it, it depends on your definition of a shortcut or a hack, but I would say, you know, when you look at a term like biohacking, anytime you're using science or just like, you know, in, intelligent technology to enhance human biology or to even get stuff done in a shorter period of time, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it, but yeah, I, I combine that with blood, sweat, and tears. And so I think you can have the best of both worlds. You don't have to be like, you know, a nerdy computer programmer living in your mom's basement, trying to hack your way to fitness. I, I don't, I don't think that's the answer, but you know, if you're, if you're putting in the hard work and then also using technology as the icing on the cake, man, I, I think, I think that's just 
that's smart. And I feel, honestly, I feel better than I did when I was 16 years old and I'm 38 years old and I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm incredibly healthy and, uh, you know, all my blood testing, everything shows that to be the case. And it's because I combine the two, both hard work and smart living. I like that. I like that a lot. Listen, Ben, you, you're really big also on having something on the calendar that scares you. All right. So like, I, I can't imagine you're really afraid of much. What's on your calendar right now that scares you? Well, it's funny you should ask because right now I am uh, putting together uh, uh, the pieces for a, about a six-day trip over to uh, Africa to live with the uh, Hazda hunter-gatherer tribe and do some mountain climbing and some persistence hunting and some some living with a, with a with an you know like an indigenous African tribe just to be able to get a better glimpse into you know how a lot of these hunter-gatherer tribes operate you know what a persistence hunt would be like versus you know me just going out with a compound bow actually you know running an animal down over sometimes you know over 100 miles and uh you know that's something that's that's coming up that certainly will push me outside my comfort zone and it doesn't have to be something physical right like i could have signed up for whatever you know stand-up comedy night three nights from now and you know had to create a set and get up there in front of a bunch of people and try to make them laugh or you know sign up for for an open mic night and and learn a few songs of the guitar and go play in front of a bunch of people i'm you know i'm nervous playing in front of you know it's kind of the sky's the limit but i'm always a fan of having something on the calendar a few months out that scares the hell out of you or at least pushes you pretty far outside your comfort zone because that's what keeps us growing physically mentally and spiritually hey really quickly ben what happened to you had a trip that was scheduled for alaska for this past august you didn't do that right no, I, I was supposed to go up for 10 days and do a, uh, a fishing uh, a grizzly and moose bow hunting trip uh, up in Alaska. And I decided instead, because those are 10 days, you know, let, let me put it this way. You know, my, my boys, they're only with me, you know, until maybe maximum they're 18 years old, you know, probably closer to like 15 or 16 at the rate that they're going. And those 10 days away from my boys, I can do that when I'm, when I'm 45, you know, or, or 50. And so I instead, uh, I said, wound up taking my boys out for a six day wilderness survival course to spend time with them. Cause I look right now as a father of, of young men who are going through a stage in life where uh, they really, you know, they need their dad around as, as a, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a motivator. Uh, you know, I, I, I would rather choose activities in which I can be with them. I'm even trying to see if I can get them to, to come over with me in February over to Africa, if that's something I wind up doing. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking at life through that lens at this period of my life as a father and choosing activities that I can, that I can have my boys be with me on. Cause you know, they're, they're only going to be around for so long in terms of being right there in the house. So Ben, did you graduate college when you were 16? No, no. I started college when I was 15. I graduated college when I was 20. Okay. Okay. With a uh, master master's degree in exercise physiology and biomechanics. Right. So, what's their path? If you feel like that they're going to be gone when they're eighteen, will they take a similar path? What do you think they will do? Well, to to be frank with you, what they're interested in doing right now is uh, on the you know they're they're unschooled, meaning they don't follow a set curriculum. We just surround them with as many uh, you know books and games and and tutors and activities that fuel whatever it is they happen to be passionate about in the moment. Then we just sit back and let them you know, educate themselves. When I uh, left the house, they were outside building a snow fort and, you know, it's the kind of stuff they spend their day doing. You know, they, they read, they still do some math, you know, and, and there's 12 core subjects that Washington state requires that you prove that your children have been uh, engaged in. And, but that's pretty easy to accomplish, right? Like chemistry can be, you know, like yesterday, they spent four hours at a local restaurant getting trained by a chef 
on how to make pasta and all these amazing Italian dishes. And, you know, that satisfies social studies. It satisfies chemistry. It satisfies math. You know, they built a giant tree fort last year with the local contractor. And, you know, that satisfied also like math, geometry, trig, stuff like that. So that's kind of the way they learn. But with the path they're on, they're probably going to be ready for college when they're 14, 15 years old. Like I mentioned, they want to take a gap here, go uh, hike the Pacific Crest Trail or, you know, go travel around Europe for a while. And they're both very interested in, uh, in art, in music, in cooking, and in writing. And they're actually also very interested in getting a liberal arts education. So uh, at this point, um, there's a small college called New St. Andrews in Moscow, Idaho, that they're interested in attending. And, you know, I anticipate if that's what they decide to do, they'll probably be, you know, going to college when they're 15 and a half, 16 years old. And, you know, and, and, and who knows, they might come out the, the backside and decide they want to be a lawyer or an engineer or physician or, or whatever. But I just tell them, you know what, identify what it is that your unique purpose is in life identify the unique skill sets that you were born with, the things that come easy to you or the things that, that, you're, that you're passionate about, and then go out and bless and love as many people as you can with that passion. And you don't have to worry about money. You don't have to worry, worry about income. Just find your purpose in life and go out and love other people with that purpose and you'll be set. Amazing. Really quickly, and I so appreciate this conversation. I know that you've worked with, well, I mean, numerous CEOs, sports organizations. I'm really curious, Ben, about the work you've done with the Miami Heat because they've got one of the more fascinating cultures in all of sports. I mean, they're just different. They're not for everybody. Not everybody fits into their system. Not every athlete thrives in their system and culture. What was it like to work with them? And did you spend time with Pat Riley in particular? What was that experience like or is like? I didn't do a lot of work with them. I did a few brief consulting trips okay. down there uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, primarily to look into things that they weren't thinking about. Uh, we're talking about things like, uh, you know, air quality at the, at the gym there in American Airlines, what kind of water the players were drinking, um, customized nutrition profiles set up for each player, um, you know, what the lighting was like, you know, whether the lighting was was natural or, or conducive to the circadian rhythm and the sleep habits of the players, different different supplements and things to help with, you know, jet lag and, and travel. And it, it was more just me meeting with uh, Eric, the strength coach, and Eric, the head coach, about different things that could be implemented, you know, for air, light, water electricity nutrients supplements etc and um you know it's a pretty pretty brief consulting gig but I'm, I'm in no way officially you know affiliated with their staff or anything like that they just brought me in as an as an independent consult to chat for a little while about a few things all right so finally and i get that i appreciate that finally people listening right now there, there is so much more you and i can do this for hours you're also the creator of the longevity blueprint exactly what is that oh uh, that was a firm out of um Malaysia called um, Mind Valley, and they create these online learning courses. And because I study up so much on on anti-aging longevity, it's the entire, you know, kind of thrust of my of my new book, Boundless. They wanted to create almost like a course that's systematized what exercises you do, what kind of smoothies you drink in the morning, or supplements that you take. Um, you know, what what kind of uh, outdoors activities do you do? How many reps? how many sets, um, you know, what, what we cover everything from, you know, stem cells to exercises, to nutrition, to, you know, the most fringe biohacks to the really basic natural stuff that a lot of these so-called blue zones around the world are doing where people are living a disproportionately long period of time. And we just wove that all into kind of like a, a done for you curriculum. So rather than it being a book that you read, it's more like a online series of videos and courses that you take where you follow along with the workouts or the recipes, et cetera. That, that, that particular course, you know, they, 
they brought a film crew out to my house and and really it's it's i i would say it's a little bit skewed more towards kind of like the exercise and movement component uh whereas my my book is is more all-encompassing as far as nutrition supplementation biohacking etc but uh it's 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 a good course for anybody who wants to kind of tap into you know how, how should you exercise and move if you want to live a long time Ben, your book is boundless. I want to make sure listeners know that the book is boundless. Ben, if there's if there's a place or if people have any other interest or questions or they want to continue this pursuit, where would they go? What's the best way to get access to you and information? Yeah, I put out a podcast a couple times a week. Uh, where I interview somebody way smarter than me. So a scientist, a physician, a researcher, et cetera, usually in the realm of health or fitness or nutrition or performance. That's at, at uh, bengreenfieldfitness.com or wherever you download podcasts. And then I also write a couple of articles a week on those same type of topics. Again, that's all at bengreenfieldfitness.com. And then, uh, as, like you mentioned, you know, my book, Boundless, uh, which is at boundlessbook.com. It's about 650 pages jam-packed with a whole bunch of additional stuff for people who just want a, 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 a a hefty paperweight for their desk. My man, I, I, I love I love this notion of you interview people who are much smarter than you. I don't know how many of those people you find, but I really, really appreciate your time, Ben. It was long. It was well worth the wait. It was well worth the wait, and I appreciate the conversation very much. It's amazing how much content that we got into that window of time. So thank you very, very much for that, and I got so much out of that, and I know the listeners did too. Hey, I'll talk about psilocybin and dicks with you anytime, Jim. My man. My two favorite topics. <laughs> Thanks very much, man. Have a great day. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. All right. Catch you later. So do you own or rent your home? Of course you do. And I bet that can be hard work. So you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. So go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you can save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Remember when I said that might be the most interesting conversation I've had ever on this pod? Right. Now you know why. What a mind-blowing, mind-opening episode. And if you want to get more from Ben, check him out on Twitter. He's at Ben Greenfield. And the links to everything he's doing are right there on his page. So an enormous thanks to him for that. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. Make sure you get subscribed on your way out and tell a friend about the best side hustle going right now. And I appreciate it, as always. We're back next week with another fresh ep. But until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. I mean, this is Alan in Pittsburgh. I'm not going to be able to sleep all weekend after the foreskin with ears comment. That is the best ever. Love the show. Be safe. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. Steven Centerfell again. <laughs> I just got through watching the tape of your show. <laughs> that song, Rip V. Hawk. Parody Larry is Beethoven meets the Rolling Stones compared to this guy's mess. <laughs> It is funny, though. you got to give it that. See ya. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. This is Trevor calling from the 321. Just wanted to say it was a damn fine and funny week in the jungle this week. So thanks to the input, the XR4TI. Mostly thanks to you, Jim, because you bring it every day, and I truly appreciate that. I really needed some laughter in my life this week. Everybody brought it. So love you, my man. Message saved.
Next message. Fan Smack, it's Kenny in Albany. I had to gas up that Jim Gray podcast. I mean, that thing wasn't a podcast. That was a conversation between two legends. I thought you guys were sharing a beer just talking about life. thing was freaking sweet. Damn, Rit. Good job, I guess. That's the one thing you didn't screw up this week. Late. Message saved. Next message. Hello, Van Smack. It's FedEx Keith in Missouri. Hey, my dad went in for a heart test, and he failed it and was rushed off to the big hospital, and he had the COVID, and they isolated him, and we didn't get to see him for a while. So the jungle, as heartless as it is sometimes, takes care of its own. So if anybody else going through that, I want you to know, man, we're not alone out there. The jungle's with them. You don't know what it feels like till you go through that, Van Smack. So I'm going through it. I just want everybody to know that the jungle's with them. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. This is Ken Milwaukee. I just want to thank you for all your whistle talk. I know your son goes to Madison, and you got real estate up in Eagle River, and all the Packer talk that you do. You had Aaron Rodgers on, Aaron Jones, Paul Crisp, a lot of Milwaukee buck talk and brewer talk you've done through the years. I just want to thank you a lot, Badger Jim. You're doing a very good job of keeping us up to date on all the sports in Wisconsin. I just want to know if you can maybe someday get some local sports, uh, like the local bowling scores, on at the end of the show someday. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Van Smack. Then have the greatest reception in the car today. Did you say podcast 154 is about an athlete injecting PhDs into his junk? How the hell did Brit land Barry Barnes for the podcast? Can't wait to hear this. Message saved. You have no more messages.